Well, I'm so excited to be here with you guys this morning and to share this message that's been on my heart for a while now. It's called Passionless Hope. It's a message about the hope of the Lord and how it meets us no matter how dark the moment. It's a message about how we can have a passionate faith regardless of our circumstances because of who God has revealed himself to be. It's a message that begins in the painful months that followed the death of my four-year-old son, Henry. Some of you might remember a few years ago, I was here, like Trevor said, and I shared the story of Henry's life and his battle with brain cancer and his death. And I shared how my picture of God radically impacted that experience of suffering. And so like Trevor said, since that time, our family has moved and we live here in St. Paul. And so it's so wonderful to be here today, not as a visitor, but as a family member at Woodland Hills Church. This is such a special place. And I'm so happy to be part of a Jesus looking group of folks that project a Jesus looking God and a um, Jesus looking kingdom to the world. So I want to start today by sharing a story with you. In April 2013, my husband and I, we decided to sell our house. Now, even though we loved our house and we loved our neighbors and our community, this was just four months after Henry died. And I realized I couldn't walk past Henry's empty bedroom anymore. His bed was always made. His floor was always picked up. It was just like I always wanted. (laughs) I had always wanted his room like this, but not like that. Now I ached for messy floors and an unmade bed. Now the room's cleanliness was like a testament to Henry's unrelenting absence. It was like an orderly shrine to the chaos of grief. And I knew that I had to leave. So we staged our home beautifully and we priced it aggressively. And after two weeks on the market, we had a contract and suddenly the time had come to say goodbye. I got what I asked for. I would be free of Henry's quiet bedroom. I would be free of the sudden triggers of painful memories like our little boy running barefoot through the backyard. Or streaking his sticky hands all over the fridge. Or spilling glitter all over the kitchen floor. You know, I got what I asked for. But suddenly, I needed to be alone. So Ian, he agreed to take Miriam to our new apartment while I cleaned and while I emptied our home of its final possessions. And while I scrubbed and polished and delayed the inevitable, I listened to a sermon Now, the pastor in my earbuds, he was talking about prophetic speech. And he read this remarkable passage from the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel says, the Lord's power overcame me. And while I was in the Lord's spirit, he led me out and he set me down in the middle of a certain valley. And it was full of bones. He led me through them all around, and I saw there were a great many of them on the valley floor, and they were very dry. He asked me, human one, can these bones live again? And I said, Lord God, only you know. 
He said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the Lord's word. The Lord God proclaims to these bones, I am about to put breath in you and you will live again. I will place sinews or tendons on you, place flesh on you and cover you with skin. When I put breath in you, you will come to life and you will know that I am the Lord. I prophesied just as I was commanded. There was a great noise as I was prophesying, then a great quaking, and suddenly the bones came together bone by bone. Now when I looked, suddenly there were sinews on them. Flesh appeared and they were covered over with skin, but there was still no breath in them. He said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, human one, say to the breath, the Lord God proclaims, come from the four winds breath, breathe into these dead bodies and let them live. I prophesied just as he commanded me. When the breath entered them, they came to life and stood on their feet, an extraordinarily large company. He said to me, human one, these bones are the entire house of Israel. They say our bones have dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely finished. So now prophesy and say to them, the Lord God proclaims, I'm opening your graves. I will raise you up from your graves, my people, and I will bring you to Israel's fertile land. You will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from your graves, my people. And I remember that day having this vague recollection of this Old Testament story, probably from childhood. But honestly, I didn't know what it has to do with us today. I mean, we're told that God takes Ezekiel into this valley and it's just full of dry bones strewn about lying in heaps. And God says, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel, he looks at the stacks of brittle remains. They're stripped of all flesh and breath and potential. And surely he thought it's impossible. It's unimaginable. This situation is hopeless. But he doesn't say that. He says, Lord God, only you know. And God calls Ezekiel to do the impossible. The unimaginable. He calls him to speak hope into the hopeless. To prophesy breath, tendons, flesh, and skin over the bones. And so in obedience, Ezekiel begins to prophesy. And the bones begin to rattle. They join together before his eyes. Sinews and and tendons and flesh appear and skin covers them. And soon there's whole bodies just lying motionless at Ezekiel's feet. But there's no breath in the lungs. And so again, God tells Ezekiel, prophesy. Prophesy to the breath. And again, Ezekiel uses his voice in obedience. And the bodies fill with breath. Resurrected bodies rise to their feet. And God proclaims them to be the people of Israel. Now the pastor in my earbuds, he said this story illustrates that we like Ezekiel, are called to prophetically speak hope. We're called to look upon those situations in life that seem impossible, 
unimaginable, hopeless. And we're to proclaim the hope of the Lord. He likened it to Martin Luther King Jr. sharing aloud his dream of racial reconciliation. I got completely lost in this sermon. And before I knew it, our home was spotless. I had wiped the small marker stained fingerprints off the outlets. I had buffed the scuff marks from riding toys off the floorboards. I had wiped the colorful chalk smears off the outside columns. And suddenly I had to say goodbye. I had to say another goodbye. But unlike the goodbye that I had said to my son, Henry, just four months earlier, I knew this goodbye would be felt fully and completely without the anesthetic of shock. So I wandered through our home, one empty room after another, in a fog of rich memories and bankrupt dreams. This was the house where my babbling toddler had grown into a chattering little boy. It was where we had made crayon masterpieces and where we had squished Play-Doh and where we had built block towers and, and where we had conquered potty training. It was where he had proudly helped me stir soups and wash dishes and water plants. It was where he met his sister, Miriam. It was where we had celebrated birthdays and holidays with family and friends. It was where we had laughed hard and cried loud. It was where Henry passed from this life into eternal life. And as the flashes of our life lapped over me, I experienced the full force of crippling loss. I sank to the floor in our master bedroom and I bawled and moaned and rocked with the waves of desperation. The pain was so thick and so consuming that I struggled for air and I truly wondered if I could rise. I remember, I remember crying out toward the ceiling, how, how can I do this? And my body was crumpled in a heap on that beige carpet. Leaving seemed impossible, unimaginable, hopeless, until I remembered. I remembered the sermon of hope that helped me scrub our home into someone else's house. I remembered Ezekiel, and I knew it was my turn to prophesy hope. So through my sobs... With the next gasp of air, I whispered, I have hope. And my sobs settled. And I lie there motionless. Because those three words had helped pull me together. But I didn't have the strength to rise. So again, I used my voice in obedience. And I said a little bit louder this time, I have hope. And I sat up and I filled my lungs with a powerful breath. I have hope. I said, as I found the strength to rise to my feet. I repeated that process in every other room of our house. 
each time I was flattened by a fresh downpour of memories. But each time I spoke the hope of the Lord over and over until I gained the strength to rise. I don't know how I would have left that day without prophetically speaking hope. A few weeks later, someone sent a video to us, and it was meant as encouragement. This little film, it profiled several Christian families who had also lost children. And so I studied these parents. I I clicked play on the video, and I remember just being glued to the screen. I was peering into it like a crystal ball. I was was just searching for clues, and I was trying to figure out, how is my life going to play out? The parents in that film, they had lost children years or even decades earlier. And so I was watching them and I was trying to figure out, is my pain ever going to fade? Is it always going to be this intense? Can I ever feel happy again? And I studied their tones and their faces. And, and you know, I saw emotions that I recognized. I saw the same flashes of anger. I saw the same pain and sadness. I saw the same hope for restoration in eternity. But despite everything that I identified with, something seemed off. Something was missing as these parents almost robotically went about their old hobbies of gardening and golfing and taking nature walks. Something was scary about the dullness of their expressions, their mouths turned downward, the way that they seemed to be idly passing the time. Something was painfully absent in their eyes when they spoke about God. But what? What was it? I thought about it for days. There had been so much that I recognized from my own grief experience, the same anger, pain, faith, loss, and sadness. What was missing from their stories? That seemed to be present in my loss. Finally, it hit me. Passion. Because in their eyes and smiles and body language, I'd seen hope, but no passion. And when it came to God's role in their loss, defeat seemed to coat their answers. I remember one father softly saying something like, well, God taught me he was all I needed. These stories were meant as encouragement. They were success stories of precious parents who had faced the worst and they hadn't abandoned their faith. But unfortunately, I think their understanding of God's role in their pain was robbing them of their passion for God. They all embraced the blueprint worldview. This means they all thought that their children died according to God's perfect plan for a mysterious higher purpose. That it was all transpiring according to his meticulous divine blueprint. See, like most Christians, they assume that an all-powerful God could unilaterally just step in and prevent tragedy. And since God didn't intervene to save their children, they thought, well, it must be part of his plan. And with an assumption like this, these parents' lack of passion is completely understandable. How could they be passionate about a God who stamped approved on their worst nightmare? 
couldn't. I could have hope within this view. I could have hope of restoration in eternity. I could have hope that my suffering will one day cease. And hope is powerful. Hope gave me the strength to rise to my feet when I was overcome with grief. But passion, passion compels me to get up here and speak. Hope is sufficient for me to press forward, but passion compels me to reach out to you. And it weighs heavily on my heart that so many Christians speak of hope against the backdrop of the blueprint worldview. We speak of hope while holding the unspoken notion that God causes or specifically allows radical suffering for mysterious higher purposes, that it's all transpiring according to God's meticulous divine blueprint. See, while I could find hope to survive within this framework, my faith would be stripped of the passion to thrive. Because hope is about God's promises. It's about healing and restoration and eternal life. It's about things to come. Passion. Passion is about God's character. If I'm a child of God, who's my father? What's he like? If I'm part of this bride of Christ, who am I married to? What's he like? See, my passion for God cannot outrun my picture of God. I'm going to say that again. My passion for God cannot outrun my picture of God. And the blueprint worldview paints a picture of God as the one who designs our devastation. It says that from the foundations of the world, God planned for some of us to have children who would never grow up. That God wanted us to fall in love with our little ones and dream big dreams for them. Dreams that he never meant to fulfill. See, the, God, the blueprint worldview teaches that God is good and that he planned all the evil. It says that God is beautiful and that he controls all the ugly. It calls God a loving father, one who specifically allows every brain tumor, kidnapping, and school massacre. But to say that something is good and evil, beautiful and ugly, loving and unloving. It doesn't make sense. Many of us have found that within this blueprint worldview, our hearts and our minds cannot align. There's conflict between them, and that conflict can kill our passion for God. This inner discord, it can be like a quiet undertow that just pulls our passion into a sea of unanswered questions, such as, why, God? Don't you love me? Do I really deserve this? See, within the blueprint framework, there are no good answers. And I think this is why Christians are often told not to seek answers, but instead to seek God's presence. But whose presence are we seeking? Whose presence are we seeking? Are God's arms safe? Is he really loving? Is he someone that we can trust? Now, for the longest time, I couldn't be sure. For the longest time in my faith journey, there were major differences in the way that I viewed God the Father and the way that I viewed Jesus. Now, I'm going to explain using a word association game. Have you ever played that? So if I say a word, you say the first word that pops into your mind. All right, so if I say red, blue, okay. What about if I say dance? 
What's that? Jitterbug. <laughs> All right. So for most of <laughs> so for most of my life, if someone had said the prompt Jesus in this game, I probably would have said something like Son, Savior, Lamb, crucified, obedient, gentle, innocent, loving, miracle worker, or scapegoat. If someone had said God in this game, I would have said father, all powerful, all knowing, jealous, mighty, holy, in control, ruler, wrathful or judge. See, I'd always thought of Jesus as submissive and God as authoritative. Jesus is innocent and long-suffering. God is wrathful and vengeful. My faith, I'm going to tell you a story about what my faith was like. My faith was like this. Do you know how when you get married, you bring like yourself and your stuff to the marriage? And your spouse, your spouse brings themselves and their stuff to the marriage. But if you're like me and you get married at like 21 years old, you move into a tiny apartment. So you can't bring all your stuff. You leave a lot of it at your parents' house. And so I, we, my husband and I got married at 21, 22, and we brought our most prized possessions into the relationship. We were like, these are the things that mean enough to us to build the foundation of our marriage. These are our prized possessions. My husband brought several prized possessions. The first one that I really clearly remember that was very important to him was a collection of coconut shells carved in the uh, shape of human faces. (laughs) And so his mother's hutch filled with my mother's china had a row of coconut heads on top of it. (laughs) This is marriage. Give and take. Yes and no. Yes to this and no to that. So he brought some more prized possessions into the marriage, including two cement blocks. And he was like, Jess, Jess, these cement blocks are awesome because they hold up the speakers under my TV and the sound is so great. And Jess, I know they're not like traditional, but we don't have a lot of money. And these cement blocks, they're like, they're like industrial and they're cool. And I was like, no, they're not cool. (laughs) I love you, but I hate your cement blocks. You know, I want to live my life with you, but not with them. And so he was like, all right, okay, okay, Jess, you know, marriage is about compromise. So we'll say no to the cement blocks, but we'll say yes to my pink flamingo poster. And I'm not kidding. For three years, I woke up in the morning, stumbled into the living room and bam, pink flamingo right there on the wall. I'd go out and have a long day at work and school, come home, bam, pink flamingo waiting for me. But this poster, even though it was like the bane of my newlywed existence, this poster, even I found it kind of mesmerizing and he would never have heard me admit this, but sometimes I would stare at it. Because this grainy flamingo, it's composed of thousands of tiny pixels. And each pixel is like a tiny photo of a nature scene. These range from like animals at play to vibrant sunsets to moonlit nights. And assembled together, they make this portrait of a grainy flamingo. 
Well, much like an artist had done with this poster, I had taken all the biblical depictions of God and all of my various experiences of God. And I had pieced them all together in this wild photo mosaic of his character. Now, for me, the darker pixels were like a harsh judge with a pointed finger or like a stately king with his nose in the air or like a ruthless warrior with a spear in his hand. And for me, the brighter pixels were the love struck groom of humanity named Jesus healing the sick, washing the feet of his disciples or laying down his life for mine. See, I thought that each piece was supposed to contribute to a complex and mysterious whole. And so my picture of God was grainy and pixelated until Jesus became the lens that brought God's essence into focus. And that didn't happen overnight. That was a long process that began about two years before Henry's diagnosis. That's when I began to reexamine my picture of God. And I kept coming back to this verse in Hebrews. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. It says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things through his powerful word. This was revolutionary to me. I checked my Bible daily for a while just to make sure that it was still there. (laughs) It was giving me written permission, heck, even the instruction to view Jesus as the exact representation of God. And so I started to press into this further and I found that scripture supports this all over the place. And what happens with me is when people find out that I wrote a book about a loving God who doesn't ordain or orchestrate or specifically allow our traumas, they say, well, sometimes people will say, well, you know, Jess has been through something hard. And so she made up some touchy feely, ooey gooey, ear tickling, tickles her fancy theology that makes her feel better. But I'm excited to tell you that that's not the case, that it was two years before Henry's diagnosis that I came across these verses and I started to really dig in more. And I found many of them to show you today. (laughs) Um, For instance, Philippians two, six, Jesus is God's own form. See, Colossians, he's God's own image. He's the one who created all things. In him, all things hold together. Scripture supports this all over the place. And when I began to use Jesus as the lens to bring God's essence into focus, I found a God whose heart is not mysterious, but filled with the love that I had always longed for. And as I began to think back on my list of words that I had associated with God, And the list of words that I had associated with Jesus, I began to ask myself, what if every description that I had of Jesus was true of God? And I have some more verses to show you. I found more verses that supported this wonderful idea that to understand God's true nature, we're only to look to Jesus. That in John 1, we're told that the law was given through Moses. 
Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the truth about God's character. And the pinnacle of his ministry was the moment that he gave his life for this world that he so desperately loves. And I have a few more verses for you. (laughs) Some more of my favorites. We can learn that all scripture points to Jesus. That we are instructed to fix our eyes and hearts upon Jesus. And that when we resolve to know the character of God, we are to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I finally became convinced that Jesus didn't represent just part of God's character, but all of it. And this realization brought my heart and my mind into alignment. It cleared up the conflict and it introduced a newfound passion for God. Now I could finally readily accept that God is love, that this love was defined through the self-sacrifice of the cross when Christ died and rose for his enemies. See, deep down, I had never been able to accept that the God of the blueprint was a God of love. For so long, I had pictured God as sometimes loving and sometimes not. He was like the scary conductor of my life's broken symphony. And I thought that I was supposed to trust that even the harmful actions that supposedly came from him were somehow loving. I had thought of God as aloof and harsh and ruthless. But his son was gentle and empathetic and loving. And this lukewarm faith created, uh, this pixelated faith created a very lukewarm loyalty to a very confusing picture of God. I had lived most of my faith journey in fear of the one who loves me enough to slip on humble human form, share his heart in dirty sandals, and surrender even to a shameful death all out of his unsurpassable love for us. But I finally became convinced that Jesus is the supreme and final revelation of God. He's the very face of God, the one we fix our eyes and hearts upon. When we consider the character of God, we know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's the essence of God, his essence of Calvary-like love. Some say it this way. They say, God does not reveal Jesus to us. Jesus reveals God to us. Now, when we lock this in, when we really lock this in, the implications are profound. Especially when it comes to God's role in suffering. Now, when tragedies occur, and I hear Christians say, well, it's all part of God's plan. I stop. And I think, would Jesus create the same plan? I ask myself, does what I'm hearing presuppose a picture of God that looks like Jesus? Jesus who healed and served and came to bring life to the full. Who healed the ear of his arresting officer before he prayed for his assailant's forgiveness with his final breaths. See, when I look to the blueprint worldview, I don't see a picture of God that looks like Jesus. A God who plans our agony in detail to glorify himself doesn't look like Jesus. Let's consider a real world example. Now, we've all heard the news stories in recent years about school shootings. And together, I want us to think back to the morning of December 14th, 2012. Now, for me, this isn't hard. This is two days before my son died. And the news that morning was nonstop coverage of a mass shooting that took place at Sandy Hook Elementary School. 
following this horrific event were several well-intentioned words, such as somehow this is all part of God's plan. Or God has brought them all home. But let's pause. Let's remember that Jesus is the lens that brings God's essence into focus. Would we say these same well-intentioned words about Jesus? Let's pretend that Jesus was there that day in bodily form at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Let's say he knew the shootings were planned and he had the power to stop them, but he didn't. Instead, let's say that Jesus did in bodily form what many Christians say that that God does in spirit form. Can we picture Jesus nodding in sad approval while a gunman takes 26 lives? Can we picture him whispering to the shooter after 25 slayings, I'll allow one more? Because 26 was somehow the exact number that his perfect plan calls for? Does this sound like Jesus? No. No, no, of course not. And yet, this is how we portray God when tragedy strikes. And Christians, when we stoically profess, well, it's all part of the tapestry that God is weaving together. Or when we say, well, sometimes we just can't see what God is doing when our eyes are blurry with tears. See, it seems to me that within this blueprint worldview, the best that we leave Christ following traumatized persons to aspire to is stoic resignation. Just like the parents that I saw in that video. Because this view renders God's heart for them mysterious at best. And when it comes to God's character, mystery leaves battered hearts primed for passionless hope. This is why we have to critically consider our picture of God and God's role in suffering. I've found that the more convinced I am that God is opposed to evil, the more compelled I am to share his love. And I think this is what separates my grief experience from the grief that I saw in that video. Because within my grief, there's a belief. A belief that creates a spark. I can say, God didn't do this. God didn't plan this. God didn't want this. God wasn't passive in Henry's death and he wasn't trying to teach me something. By watching my child die, God loves us. God loves us with a love that we can recognize. See, by the time Henry had died, I had come to embrace that God's character is not a mystery. God's love is something that we can recognize, that we must recognize. In Ephesians 5, we're told to be imitators of God and to love as he does. We can only follow commands that we understand. We can only show love if we know love and we do. God's love was defined by the cross. It's a love that ascribes worth to another sometimes at great cost to oneself. Christians, we're called the bride of Christ. It's our husband's character, his incredible character that calls us to him, that makes us fall passionately in love with him. Horrible things happen in this world, but not because a divine blueprint calls for them. I believe that God revealed in Jesus is always doing everything possible to maximize good and minimize evil within the constraints of the world that he created. 
Why do I believe this? Because God is Calvary-like love. He always has been. He always will be. God looks like Jesus laying down his life even for those who hate him. And this love of God wins in the end. The resurrection demonstrates that this powerful, transformative love cannot be overcome by brute force. It is always ultimately victorious. Christians, we can all have hope that suffering will one day cease. We can all have hope in everlasting life. And there's power in our hope. There's power in speaking our hope out loud. Following Ezekiel's example of speaking hope can help us overcome the most painful moments of our lives and help us rise to our feet. But let's remember that we don't have to stop at hope. I believe we're called to a life of hope and passion for God. We're called to live a life of hope for tomorrow and a passion evoking picture of God today. But for some of us, this means reexamining some of the long-held assumptions that we've had about God. So as we close, I want to take a moment and I want to close our eyes and do the word association game one more time. I'm going to say two words, and I want you to silently reflect on what pops into your mind after each one of them. Are you ready? All right. God. Jesus. I want to invite you to just sit with these two lists this week and to begin to examine the similarities and the differences. Is your picture of God a photo mosaic like mine was? Or for you, is God's essence brought into focus through the lens of Calvary? If not, I hope you'll continue to wrestle with any doubts or questions or reservations that you might have. Doing this has helped me move past a soiled image of God and help me discover the passion that can overflow when my heart and my mind are in alignment. This kind of passion shakes us and wakes us and compels us to get busy being the hands and feet of Christ. It propels us to share that God's love is pure. His character is trustworthy. He battles to bring good out of evil and he calls us to join him. He's the father to the prodigal son, the lamb that was slain, the resurrected savior who brings hope to the hopeless, who breathes life into the lifeless and who loves us with a love that we can recognize. This is my hope and This is my passion. I want to invite you to pray with me. And as I do, I'd like to invite the prayer teams to come forward. If you have any needs or you want someone to process with, just come forward and meet with these folks. They are so precious. Dear God, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your love revealed to us in your son. And pray for every person listening to this message here or on podcast that you would just infuse us with the joy and with the courage that we need to wrestle with anything that we have in our hearts about your character that doesn't line up with the love of Jesus. And I pray that as we wrestle that you draw us ever closer to your heart.
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.